those of you who are on, it's 12 o'clock right now, but I think we're going to give it a few more minutes to give people a chance who might be straggling a little bit. So we'll start, we'll start really soon here. Well, I, I think we should go ahead and get started. Um, before I jump into it, though, I want to want to check Lindy or Jaron. Um, did you guys want to say anything on behalf of the Homebuilders Association before we jump into our presentation? Jaron is going to be here in about five minutes, Scott, and I'll grab him once he comes in and ask him if he wants to say a few things. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll get going then. Um, so I'm Scott Welker and I'm here with my colleague Jeff Owens. We're both with VF Law and um, we handle all aspects of, of um, law that, that, that covers construct, the construction industry. So builders and developers and subcontractors and all aspects of, of law along those, those lines. Um, Jeff and I have both been practicing in various areas um, that touched the construction industry um, for several years and our office is regional, um, our firm is regional and we have um, our office here in Salt Lake which is where Jeff and I are located and we find it helpful to do um, legislative updates for our clients. We've done them over the years. Uh, these are the laws and the, the um, both both laws that our legislature has passed and also law that, that the courts have, have essentially put into place. Um, over the last year up until from 2019 up until now um, in May of 2020. This is what we rely on. Um, of course, in addition to all the historic uh, law that, uh, that is built up over time, but this is what we rely on in the 
counsel that we give our clients, but I think it's helpful to kind of give you guys the source material um, now and again so you can get that context. Um, and we're going to try to focus more on what are the practical results of, uh, of the changes that Utah law has, has undergone over the last year and how, you know, how does that kind of affect your industry and not bore you too much with just sort of the, the details that might be interesting to an attorney, but, but probably wouldn't be interesting to anyone else. Uh, Jeff, do you have anything to add to that before I go into my first one? No, not really. Um, uh, just by way of introduction, I've been uh, practicing for about 15 years, um, doing primarily litigation, and a lot of that, um, or most of that, in fact, related to the construction industry. Um, I also serve as general counsel for a number of construction companies and other types of businesses as well. Um, you know, for, for all of their transactional and, and other types of general counsel needs, um, in addition to the, uh, the, the litigation. I, I've been on both sides um, of construction cases. Some of you may uh, recognize me or remember me from um, cases that you've been involved in. Um, I've represented builders, I've represented subcontractors, I've represented developers, and I've represented homeowners against builders and developers and, and contractors. Um, I, I definitely prefer to be on the builder side of things and the developer side of things, but um, you know, we, we, we argue uh, what, our, what our clients need. So um, we, we have a lot of experience in this area and Scott has a lot of experience in the, uh, the, the general counsel and the HOA and the, uh, the, um, the, the construction realm as well. Yeah, my, my area is a little bit more geared towards what we call the transactional side in the law. Um, I do a little bit of litigation, but when litigation gets heavy, then um, I, I like to bring Jeff in on it. And, and I think vice versa, we kind of counsel with each other on, on the issues. Um, and by the transactional side, I mean, I, I do a lot of the setting up of, um, of easements and, and communities and, and the legal documents, um, rep C's and, and everything else and contracts that, that go along with, with kind of running uh, running a business in, in the industry. So let's go on to um, to the first slide here. Um, so want to start with this as kind of an introduction. Um, like I said, we're, we're going to talk to you about some of the source material that we rely on when we give counsel, but um, it's kind of the, the shadow land of, you probably don't want to pick up case law and sit, you know, sit it on your nightstand and read it before you go to bed. It's, it's boring stuff. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes you get some background stories that are a little bit interesting, but for the most part, it's pretty boring stuff. So we, we sit through that. I mean, it's part of what we do and I'm going to give you the highlights of it here. So I'm going to start with a case that was a Supreme Court case, a Utah Supreme Court case, um, Coburn v. Whitaker. And, um, so a little bit of background on this case. Whitaker was was installing a water pipeline, and Whitaker is not an individual; it's it's the the company. And Whitaker was installing a a water pipeline on public land, and there was a trail that ran next to the to the where the um, pipeline was being installed. Whole trail system, and one of the trails came really close to the pipeline. So the company went down and put some orange netting up. Um, kind of at the, not quite at the trailhead, but when you got close to where the construction was. Now it's important to note in this case that this wasn't a situation where the construction company owned the property that they were doing the construction on. That, that would have been a different case. And I think um, uh, your, your rights in that case are a little bit different. Um, but 
not, and not, not that it was wrong for us to put up the orange netting either. Um, the court didn't find that there was anything wrong with that, but they put up some orange netting. It's just sort of a deterrent, hoping to keep people away from the, the pipeline construction area. Um, Colburn comes along and she wants to hike the trail and she's, she comes up to the orange netting and sees it there and uh, testified that it, it had been kind of pushed down. Looks like others had stepped over it and it was about two to three feet off the ground at that point. So she goes to step over it. She trips, falls, injures herself, and sues Whitaker. It feels a little bit like, um, like the you know McDonald's hot coffee case, <laughs> right? And, which, by the way, I mean most attorneys will tell you if you look at the details of that case, it's actually a lot more to it than what it sounds like on its face. But but it kind of feels like one of those cases. Like seriously, you're you're suing somebody when they were trying to keep you safe and you just kind of stepped over their netting and, and got injured. Um, this is a good case to start with because you'll be happy to know that the court found on the side of Whitaker in this one and did say, um, hey, Coburn, you kind of brought that on yourself in a sense. Um, uh, and, and so you can't recover for the injury. But there's, there's a couple of important points here. Um, there's a doctrine in the law called open and obvious dangers. And Utah subscribes to that doctrine. And basically what it says is that when, when there's a condition, when there's a situation on land that is obviously dangerous and you you walk right into it then the person who created that condition isn't necessarily going to be liable and, and the court said this this falls under that that situate that doctrine this this was an open and obvious danger um, but something that's interesting that the court talked about um, that they seem to me to indicate that the case could have gone a different way if the facts were a little bit different and that is that that Coburn argued there was no way around the netting. I had to step over it. Um, and Whitaker was able to prove that that wasn't the case and that there was a little path that had been carved out from others who had walked around the netting and, and um, gone around different trees and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that's important to note that the court took that issue so seriously because it could be that if there truly had not been another way around the netting, Whitaker could have been liable. And that's important to note that even though we have this open and obvious danger doctrine, and even though it's kind of this common sense thing that if somebody walks into an obvious danger, they shouldn't hold you liable for it. Um, there is still a possibility of liability if, if you kind of leave them no other choice. And so it's something to watch out for. Um, you know, this case was about orange netting. It could have easily been about, about a construction site or, or some other kind of danger. And, and, you know, in the construction industry, we're often creating open and obvious dangers. And I think it's important to, to note from this case that be careful that even though there's some protection there, if, if it's created in a way, if, if, if a construction site is set up in a way that, you know, people need to get around it and there's no other way except to go through the open and obvious danger, then you're not necessarily protected if, if you're kind of forcing their hand and, and you're not giving them an, an alternate um, it's going to be a really case-by-case -case analysis, and so it's hard to, to, to kind of pinpoint a, an exact um, counsel you could give on that, other than when you're creating open obvious dangers, um, look at the situation carefully, and if you feel like you're in a situation where, where people can't avoid it, then, then be aware that there might be some liability in, that, in a situation like that. Let's go on to the next one. So the next one is Coleman v. Stewart. Now this one, I'm trying to be succinct in these, like I said, so we don't bore you with, with some of the, the mundane details. This one has kind of a complex 
um, history. And so bear with me while I explain the background on this one a little bit. So Coleman was an individual from, I think from Canada, if I remember right, who moved to Utah like in the early 90s. And he had for a number of years successfully run uh, like gymnast um, schools or gymnast studios for, for children and was a, like a gymnast coach and wanted to bring that, that business to Utah. So he comes to Utah and he builds a building in Linden and um, hired a builder to do it. And, and the builder and Coleman went into, um, entered this agreement. The builder owned the land and didn't actually sell any of it to Coleman, but they just kind of struck up an agreement. Coleman paid half a million dollars towards the, the construction. And they had this agreement that said that Coleman had some um, equity in the, in the building. They, they called it equity in the contract. I'm not sure if technically that was accurate. Um, they had some equity in the building and, and he would get paid um, if they ever sold the building, proportionate to what he had contributed and, and some other things in the contract. But again, never actually bought any piece, any interest in the land. A um, few years pass and the, the business is doing well and Coleman has, wants to relocate and build a bigger building down in American Fork. So he goes and he finds a different builder and, and Stewart is the other builder that he finds. And, and Stewart again, isn't actually an individual and that's actually referencing the, the company, but, but Stewart um, agrees to, to team up with Coleman and, and again, Coleman's not gonna buy the property. Um, I believe Stewart already owned a piece of land that they were looking at building the building on. But, but they again entered a kind of a similar arrangement where, where there was a contract between them where, where Coleman would contribute some money and, and basically gave Stewart some interest in his company where if, if Coleman made money, Stewart would make money. And Stewart said, yeah, I'm on board with that. But how are you gonna pay for the, the, the construction? And Coleman said, well, I own, I own the building in Linden. I can sell that and, and use some proceeds to pay for the, the American Fork building. Stewart said, let me see the paperwork. So he's looking through the contracts and the paperwork. And he says, you know, you have a first right of refusal on the Linden building. And he said, why don't you use your first right of refusal and direct that the, that the Linden building be sold to an LLC that you and I will set up. So now there's a Coleman-Stewart partnership. And the agreement is that they'll sell the Linden, Linden building to the partnership. In the meantime, they'll, they'll be building the American Fork building. And, and then once that's done, then they'll sell the building and kind of fund themselves. Coleman says, sounds great. So they enter this partnership, um, they set up a sale, they sign repsies and everything and, and sell the building. In, on the repsy, Coleman lists himself as a seller and he lists his former partner as a seller and he lists the new Stuart Coleman partnership as the buyer. Well, the next day the title company calls Coleman and says, hey, wait a minute, you can't sell this this building because you don't own it it's only owned by you know prior partner so coleman comes in and says okay uh, let's get all the parties back together a day or two later they get back together and in order to fix it and here's where i think the, the problem really arose in order to fix it they just wrote up a quick addendum and it looks like they didn't really consult with any legal professionals anyone else they wrote a, a really short addendum that made some really major changes to the rep and by the time they were done it was structured so that the property was sold by Coleman's prior partner. And for some reason, and I'm not sure whether this was intentional or not, it's a little bit unclear in the case, um, the this buyer changed from the Coleman-Stewart partnership to just 
a business that Stewart owned um, on his own. So Coleman was totally out of the picture on the on paper by the time the the Repsy was all finished, but he contributed four hundred thousand dollars to closing costs, um, and again he had paid five hundred grand in, in the beginning to build the building. So he's kind of in this funny situation. He spent half a million dollars to build the building, and then he spends four hundred thousand dollars to to buy the building, um, or forty thousand dollars no four hundred thousand dollars to buy the building. Um, and, and yet he's not anywhere in the paperwork. Well, over time, the Coleman-Stewart partnership kind of um, disintegrates. They, they, uh, they start to be at odds with each other. They're trying to get this building built, and then years pass, and it doesn't happen, and they can't get the zoning they want, and, and there's all these problems. Eventually, it deteriorates to the point that Coleman sues Stewart. And, and one of his primary claims in the, in the lawsuit was, um, I own an interest in that Linden building. And the lower court looked at the situation and kind of did this fairness thing where they said, you know, you contributed a bunch of money to the situation. So yeah, you own some kind of interest. And it was a little bit fuzzy. Then it goes up to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals says, you know what? You're not on the paperwork. You're not on the Repsy. There's no deeds in your name. We know you had some agreements. There were kind of these like um, letters of intent and there were some emails and that sort of thing. But there was an important principle here. The, the appeals court said, we got to look at the statute of frauds. And the statute of frauds is, is a, a body of law that um, really all states have it that says that, you know, when it comes to real estate, it has to be in writing. That's not always true with contracts in general. And, and um, you know, Jeff and I will tell you that clients will ask all the time, hey, I had this kind of handshake deal with somebody. They agreed to this. I agreed to that. Um, do we have a contract? And the answer is usually yes. You don't have to have it in writing to have a contract in most scenarios. Now, it's a much better idea to have it in writing for a myriad of reasons, but, but it's still enforceable even if it's not. Real estate's a little bit different. When it comes to selling and buying real estate, it, it does have to be in writing. Um, and the court said, you know, we got to follow the, the, the statute of frauds. It's not in writing. You have nothing. And the court acknowledged, they said, you know, we, we get that this is really unfair. Um, because again, he contributed about a million bucks, um, but and, and ends up with nothing. Um, but um, but they kind of said our hands are tied. So a couple takeaways here. I mean, one obvious one is real estate deals. You know, put everything in writing, and not just kind of in emails, but but it needs to be in the contract, and it needs to be clear in the contract uh, what exactly the, the deal is. Because there were some things in writing here, but they. But Cohen was kind of relying on this understanding of, well, everybody kind of gets that I own some interest in this property, but it didn't say that anywhere where, where it mattered. Um, another takeaway that I have is that it's important to be careful with your REPC addenda. Um, I've seen this a number of times, and I've litigated, actually, um, at least a couple other cases where, where addenda became really important and where addenda weren't well drafted. Um, we need to be careful because the contract itself is, is a well-crafted document. It usually took a long time to, to craft that. Whether you're using the, um, a standard REPC or a customized REPC, which I, I definitely recommend that you use a customized REPC, um, that took a long time to craft. Sometimes we fall into the trap of, well, we want to change something a little bit, so let's just write something up on the addenda because it's easy to do. But that needs to be just as carefully crafted as the rest of the document because it, it, it'll come back to bite you if it's not. Um, and the last thing to keep in mind is we can't necessarily rely on courts to just sort of do the fair thing or to just sort of look at the situation and say, well, you know, we know not everything 
adds up exactly as it should, but we're going to do what's fair. Sometimes the courts are going to say, you know, my hands are tied. We got to follow the, the, what the law strictly says we have to do. Okay, let's go on to the, this will be my last case and then I'll turn it over to Jeff for a few of his cases. Uh, this next one, LD3 versus Mapleton City. This is a zoning case. Um, it's a zoning case. It's also kind of a, a, a land transactions case. So in this one, we had an original owner back in the 70s who, who owned a big, large tract of land in Mapleton. And um, he wanted to develop the land. He wanted to do some residential, real, uh, residential development on it. And he, he, it wasn't zoned the way that it needed to be zoned um, for, um, for density or, or even for residential generally. And so he, he went to the city and he struck a deal with them. He said, I'm gonna give you a piece of my land in return for um, getting some, some favorable entitlements. So got the zoning how he needed it. And um, the city struck up a developer agreement with him that was recorded. Part of the developer agreement was you get the land and you get, or you get the, the zoning on the land that you want, but if anybody else uh, purchases it from you, they don't necessarily get that. We need to approve it first. So he, um, he, he, he sells the property without ever developing it about 10 years later and went through the right steps. Um, approached the city, said, we, we want the zoning to pass on to the new buyer. City said, fine. Um, new buyer owned the land. And I think they owned it for, for five or six years or something. And then they entered a partnership with, with another party. So we have new buyer and then we have another third party now. And still the land was undeveloped for quite some time. And then the partner ended up foreclosing on, um, on the person who, who bought the land from the original buyer. And the case doesn't really say why or the details there. Um, when the partner foreclosed, they now own the land and they wanted to develop it and they started um, taking action to develop it. And the neighbors around the property didn't want it developed and so they kicked up a fuss and, and led to a lawsuit. And eventually in the lawsuit, it came down to the city um, who, who kind of joined sides with the, with the neighbors um, saying to LD3, Hey, you don't have any. Uh, you don't have the entitlements you need to to develop this land um, for real estate or for the you know, density that you're trying to develop it. And he said, "Sure, I do." You know, the, my the previous owner had that, and they said, "No, um, you know that all traces back to this development agreement, and we had to get permission for any subsequent owners to to um, to use those entitlements, and you don't have that." So the takeaway there, and and the court agreed. The court said it's, it's pretty clear. So the takeaway there is um, very important to do your diligence before acquiring land. And we can't assume necessarily that, that entitlements that one, uh, one owner is acting under are gonna necessarily pass on. Um, and so we need to know the history. We need to um, spend the money to do the, to do the diligence because um, I'm sure at least three would have preferred to spend that money rather than the thousands of dollars they spent in, in litigation that they've been lost and now have a piece of land that's that's useless to them at least for the purposes that they were hoping to use it for okay we time through the time over to jeff now to um, do a few other other cases all right thanks scott um can we advance the slide to the next case um i go back one. i think we skipped one i know i need the cat map real fast okay 
There we go. Blue Ridge Homes. There we go. That's the one. Um, okay, let me see. We've got somebody that needs to be muted here. All right. Um, Blue Ridge Homes versus Method Heating. This case involves um, one of the most recent, one of the most litigated uh, statutes um, involved in the construction industry, and that's the Builder Statute of Repose, one of our favorite topics to argue about. Um, just to give a little bit of background, um, most types of claims, in fact, all types of civil claims in Utah have a statute of limitations. Um, you know, usually it's four years for tort-based claims like negligence and things like that, and it's six years for contract-based claims. There are a few others that have different, um, different time periods in which you can bring the claim. A statute of repose is a little bit different. Um, a statute of limitations uh, starts to run when the claim accrues. And what that means, usually it means that there's that, that, that the, the time period to bring the claim doesn't run, start to run until you know that you have a claim. Um, and that's, you know, pretty much across the board. A statute of repose is a little bit different. With a statute of repose, it starts to run at the occurrence of an event. So for the builder statute of repose, it basically says that any construction related claims have to be brought within six years following the issuance of a certificate of occupancy for the building. Um, and that's pretty much a hard and fast rule. There are a, a couple of exceptions, but they're very, very limited. Um, it's a statute of repose is, is designed to cut off liability at that six years, and that's the way the Utah statute of repose is written. Um, unfortunately, for builders, that can cut both ways. Um, generally, builders like the statute of repose because it cuts off the ability of homeowners and condominium associations and others to sue them for defective construction. But in this case, um, this one hurt the contractor. And the facts of the case are that um, Blue Ridge Homes, they were the general contractor on a condo project in Saratoga Springs. And the certificate, certificates of occupancy for those condo units had been issued between May of 2007 and June 9th of 2009. Um, the HOA sued Blue Ridge Homes for defective construction in December of 2014. So the HOA basically got in just under the wire by about six months um, before the statute of repose would have expired on the last of their buildings. Um, it had expired with respect to the first ones, but there were still some that would have been subject to the statute of repose in December of 2014. So Blue Ridge Homes first heard about the lawsuit when they were served in February of 2015, a couple of months later. And then over five months later, they finally get a handle on what this lawsuit's all about, and they decide to sue all of their subcontractors. Um, but they didn't sue their subcontractors until July 15th, 2015. Now, that's a lot of dates I've thrown out there, but if we look at the dates, the last of the certificates of occupancy was issued on June 9th, 2009, and they filed their suit against their subcontractors on July 15th, 2015, six years, 
one month and six days after the certificate, the last certificate of occupancy. The subcontractors um, moved to dismiss the claims um, based on the statute of repose and said, "Hey, it's been more than six years. We're we're out. You know, we're out." Um, and the lower court agreed. So that was appealed, and Blue Ridge Homes said, "Well, well, wait a minute." Um, you know, our third party complaint should relate back to the date on which we were first sued, um, because that's when the case started. Um, and, and not only that, but, you know, what if the plaintiff had sued us, you know, one day before the statute of repose um, had, had expired and we had no opportunity whatsoever to sue our subcontractors? The, uh, the Court of Appeals said, nope. The statute of repose is the statute of repose. Guess what, guys? That cuts both ways. You get the benefit of that um, against homeowners. The subcontractors also get the benefit of that against you. So you got to bring your claims within six years, um, and and that's that. So that brings up an interesting scenario and and um, an interesting question to me that is still a little bit unresolved is whether that as written and as applied is constitutional. The Utah State Constitution has an access to court provision that basically says that you get to um, have your day in court. Um, well, if a builder gets sued right before the expiration of the statute of repose and isn't served until after the expiration of the, the statute of repose, because plaintiffs have 120 days to serve the defendant when they file a lawsuit, the statute of repose can expire within that time period. And so the question becomes, well, if the builder doesn't even know they're being sued until after six years, how can they not be able to bring in their subcontractors when it's their subcontractors that they think are ultimately liable for the defects? And, um, you know, they're not even aware of any defects or aware of any claim until after that period. Um, that, that question remains un unresolved. The builder Blue Ridge Homes did bring up that argument on appeal, but since they had not brought that up in the lower court, the Court of Appeals rejected that argument and, and, and just decided not to, uh, not to consider it. Um, so, yes, you can be barred, as it sits right now, the case law, you can be barred from suing your subcontractors by the statute of repose even if the plaintiff who sued you is not barred against you. So you can still be liable as the general contractor to the plaintiff, um, the homeowner, and not be able to pass those claims through to the subcontractors if the timing doesn't work out just right. Um, so the, the takeaway from that is that that cuts both ways. So what do you do if you know, you're afraid or, or somebody has threatened or somebody has sent you a demand letter or something before the expiration of that statute of repose and alleges that there's something wrong with the construction, what, are you, what should you do? Should you go ahead and file a suit against the subcontractors before you even get sued? I don't know. Um, that question remains un unresolved. Um, if, if you find yourself in that situation, definitely you're gonna wanna seek uh, legal counsel and decide how to proceed um, on that one. Let's move on to the next one. This one, Hayes versus Intermountain Geoenvironmental. Um, this one, I, I, I used a little pun here. It says the economic loss rule is a slippery slope, and you'll see why here in just a second. Um, there was a developer that wanted to develop a subdivision in Layton, 
and they hired part of that subdivision was going to be on a hillside um, and so in 2004 the developer hired Intermountain Geoenvironmental to, to do a geotech study and prepare a slope stability report um, and, and they hired them to do that and the geotech did their investigation and came out with their report and their report said yeah it's safe to build on this hillside you know as long as you take certain precautions and so years later the developer sold some of the lots to another developer who then sold the one lot on the hillside to the hayes family and the hayes family built their uh, custom home on in uh, in 2015 so now we're 11 years after the geotech report had been obtained and um they build it on the hillside and you can guess what happens next the house starts to slide um there is it turns out that the soil is unstable and they're getting cracks in their foundation and their walls and they have an expert engineer come and testify or come and and, and opine that the foundation has actually moved down the hill we've got a landsliding problem um, and, and that sparked litigation. So the homeowners sued um, everybody, including the geotech that did the geotech study in 2004. And they sued them for negligence and said, hey, you know, you didn't build the house, but you were negligent in your professional um, duties. So you're, you're a professional geotech engineering firm. Um, you owed us a duty to, uh, to get it right, um, and you messed up, basically committed geotech malpractice, I guess you could call it. Um, and the geotech firm said, wait a minute, hang on, in Utah we have this thing called the economic loss rule. And the economic loss rule has also spur, uh, spurred a lot of litigation in Utah. And what the economic loss rule says especially in the construction industry where it's actually been codified for construction claims um, is, is that you cannot sue on a tort based claim for construction defect only contract based claims so a construction a defective construction claim has to be brought as a breach of contract claim now here's their problem their problem is they didn't have a contract with the geotech engineer. They had never, they had a contract with their custom builder um, and the seller of their lot, but they weren't the ones that hired the geotech. They had no relationship with the original developer and they had no relationship with the geotech engineer at all. The geotech engineer said, well, wait, wait you, you can't sue me then. We don't have a contract. Um, you can only sue me on a contract theory. Now there are two exceptions to the economic loss rule. You can sue, if you don't have a contract, you can sue if there is either personal injury involved or damage to quote unquote other property. So if you mess something up in your construction activities and somebody is injured as a result, they can still sue you even if they don't have a contract with you. So let's say that you defectively build a stone masonry wall and a passerby a couple years later is walking by and a rock falls off and hits them in the head and they're injured. They have no relationship with you whatsoever. They can still sue you for defective construction and their claim will not be barred by the economic loss rule. Um, the damage to other property is the same kind of a thing, only say they're driving their truck past and the wall falls on their truck and damages their property. Um, so the homeowners argued, and this is an interesting argument, 
that when you did your geotech study, you did it on the land, but our house did not exist at that time. Um, we didn't build our house until later, and our house is other property that can be damaged by your defective work. Um, and that's the issue that went up on appeal. Um, the uh, Court of Appeals said, nope, um, our prior case law basically says that a home is an integrated unit. Um, a, a home and the lot it's on are really one piece of property. It's not separate property. You can't say that other property was damaged um, by the geotech. And so the uh, geotech was essentially let off the hook um, and the case was dismissed against the geotech. Um, so that was an interesting, interesting case um, from a lawyer standpoint. <laughs> Everybody else's eyes are probably glazing over, but um, that's an interesting issue. Let's move on to the next one. This one is Sumption versus Jalen Roberts and Sons. Um, and this one I captioned, watch your steps and make sure they're safe because this involves a faulty ladder. Um, Jalen Roberts and Sons was hired by the uh, city of Springville to build a splash pad at a public park. And in doing so, they built a, they also built as part of the project, a pump house that would house all the pumps uh, for the, the, the splash pad that would pump the water. And in that pump house, there were some, um, some controls and, and maintenance controls and, and valves and things that had to be accessed via steel ladder that were that led down into the pump pit um I, that that's how they describe it in the case I, i'm having a hard time visualizing why the controls wouldn't just be at ground level but nevertheless the plans called for the installation of a pump pit and um, a ladder and so jaylen roberts and sons they subcontract with h and h steel to fabricate the ladder and the, so the ladder is fabricated, it's installed, and a couple of years later, Becky Sumption, she's a city employee, and part of her duties as a city employee is to go and make adjustments to the pumps or turn them on or off or, or whatever. Um, and so as part of her duties for her job, one day she goes in, gets on this ladder, and the ladder breaks, and she breaks her ankle. Um, and it's that injury that leads to the lawsuit. And so the question was, she sued um, the city, she sued Jalen Roberts and Sons, um, who had built the uh, splash pad, and she also sued the subcontractor. Um, actually, excuse me, it was Jalen Roberts who sued their own subcontractor saying, you guys built a faulty, um, and, and installed a faulty ladder. Um, so the question was very limited on appeal. The subcontractor and the builder both argued, well, well, wait a minute, you know, do we owe a duty to, to anybody that might possibly use this ladder? Um, you know, do, do we owe them a duty of care to, to not build a faulty ladder? Um, and so the question went up on appeal and the Supreme Court said, yes, um, a builder of an improvement owes a duty of care to all foreseeable users of the improvement, not just the owner. So that was the question is whether they, I, I think it was pretty well settled in the law that they would owe a duty to the owner of the property, Springville City. Um, she was an employee of the city. 
do they owe a duty to any other you know person that might come along and use that's not actually the owner of the property? The Supreme Court clarified this is not a surprise, I think, to most lawyers that would read this. Um, they do owe a duty of care to all foreseeable users of the improvement um, to not build the improvement negligently. So that was a very limited issue. The court did not decide whether she was actually entitled to money, um, just that she was, uh, she was owed a duty by the builder and the subcontractor um, with respect to that ladder. So she would still have to prove that the faulty ladder caused her damages and that she actually had damages and all that other kind of stuff. And so the court sent it back down to the lower court to uh, make that determination. Um, and I, as far as I know, that case is either still pending or they settled it. Um, that's, uh, it, I'm not sure what, where that one went. Um, let's move on to the next one. And this one's really interesting for developers. Um, Wallingford versus Moab. Some of you may have actually heard about this case. Um, for several years, a developer um, has been planning on building a large mixed use development just east of, east of Moab near the Slick Rock bike trail. And it was going to be known as um, Lion's Back Resort, which is where my, my stupid pun comes in the, the description there. Um, as a so they about 10 years ago, they sought approval from the city of Moab. Um, some citizens opposed, and that all went through, and the Supreme Court ultimately ruled against the citizens, and the project was approved um, as it was as it was drafted. The original um, the original project that as it was originally approved, it consisted of nine of a nine building, 50 unit hotel. Um, along with some residential, some condos and some uh, retail and um, some, some park space and a parking lot and et cetera, et cetera. Well, over the years, um, you know, some conditions changed. Um, I think this was over the um, economic downturn of 2008 to 2010. Um, they decided to change things up a little bit. And instead, the developer changed the plan to consolidate the hotel from nine buildings um, that would house 50 hotel rooms total to one single building that would house 53 bedroom villas that had lockout doors so those, those three bedrooms could all be rented separately. So essentially, it ended up with a, build, a single building that had a much, much larger footprint and had the potential to have 150 rooms as opposed to the original planned 50. The parking lot was also going to be much larger um, and a few other minor changes. I don't know if it's the same group of citizens or different citizens, but citizens once again opposed it <clears throat> um, and they were concerned. The developer was concerned and said, hey, you know, we've already knocked down these citizens. Um, you know, we've already gotten this thing approved. Do we have to go through that whole process again? And Moab City has city ordinances that, that say, even if a project has been approved, if you make minor modifications to the plan, that's okay. We can make changes, you know, minor changes um, without having to do a public hearing or anything like that. However, major changes um, require additional public hearings and, addition, and, and require going through the process again. So, the uh, developer and the city cook up this scheme whereby they're going to 
enter into an agreement um, and, and, is, and in, in this agreement, I think the developer was going to make some concessions of some kind to the city. And in exchange, the city was going to deem the changes minor. Um, so it was in the contract that they would actually deem those changes to be minor changes that would not require public hearings uh, because of these nuisance um, citizens. So in a city council meeting, the city council authorized the mayor to sign the contract. They signed the contract, the citizens group sued. Um, it worked its way through and got up on appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, and the question on appeal was, can the city and the developer just agree that the changes proposed are minor changes that won't require a public hearing? You know, or is there some other way to determine that? And the Supreme Court said, hang on, you can't just sign a contract that decides whether something is major or minor. It's either major or it's minor. And we're going to hold that the change to from 50 to 150 rooms and from nine small buildings to one huge building and the parking lot change and all these changes, those are, those are major enough changes that they justify additional uh, hearings. So ultimately the rule that came out from that and the, and, and the takeaway from that is that you can't contract around public hearing requirements that appear in either municipal, uh, county, or state law. Um, you can't just decide and agree with a handshake deal that says, hey, you know, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch my back. Um, you got to go through the proper channels. So um, it went back down. And apparently, as far as I know, this uh, is still subject to hearings. I don't think it's been finally approved yet. So the lesson here is maybe once you get your approvals, maybe leave it as is and don't make major changes if you think you're going to receive significant opposition from a citizens group. Um, you know, especially with major projects where there's very likely to be some citizen opposition or some not in my backyard type of opposition. Um, you know, once you actually manage to get that through and get it approved, you're, you might be better off to just leave well enough alone. Um, so, uh, despite my, my, my cheesy puns, um, we'll see if, uh, you know, they, they ultimately get that thing approved or whether the citizens are successful this time in um, overturning the plans. Um, I think that's my last case. So we're gonna talk about some statutes, some uh, new bills that just passed, and it looks like we're kind of running low on time. So we'll have to kind of hurry through these a little bit, but I'll kick it back to Scott. Statutes will go a lot faster though, because we don't have a history on each one to, to kind of explain, um, and we can get through these pretty quickly. So first, House Bill 273, um, you know, there's a number of statutes um, regarding the construction industry that were proposed and, and argued over in the legislature this year, this last session, but um, we're just going to highlight the, the ones that we feel were most important that, that actually passed. Um, so House Bill 273, you may or may not be aware that there was already in place uh, before this bill a system in Utah where you, you could use our property ombudsman. Um, the property ombudsman is basically like an unofficial judge, sort of. Um, somebody who you could submit, if you have a dispute, uh, you could submit the, the matter to the ombudsman and ask for an advisory opinion. And, and the opinion is not like a court opinion. It doesn't have any sort of um, enforceability. It's just, it's just uh, from, from an expert, uh, somebody extremely well-versed in, in Utah um, real estate law who will give an advisory opinion of here's how I think this is going to play out um, and probably how it's going to how a court would decide it. 
Um, and so there's already a system in place that if, if you followed that process and you got an advisory opinion from the ombudsman and then you took the matter to court anyway, and, and the end result was that the judge ruled the same way as the ombudsman, um, then, then the loser is gonna get their attorney's fees and, and court costs awarded to them, which is really important because um, if you've ever been involved in litigation, you might already know that there's a rule, we call it the American rule that says that everybody pays their own legal fees and court costs. That's kind of the, the default position. And there's a couple exceptions to that. One of them is if you have a contract that says that the other party is gonna pay your attorney's fees, then, then you get to honor that contract. But short of that, there are very few situations where you're going to have to, where you're going to be able to get reimbursed for all the money you spent to, to get through and win a lawsuit. But this is one of those few exceptions. Follow the ombudsman process, you might be able to get your attorney's fees in the end. Well, there is an update to, the, to that um, legislation this year that said that, um, added on a provision that said that if the dispute is with a, a government entity. We're, we're normally going to be talking about municipalities because if it's with a government entity over a land use issue, you know, zoning entitlement issue, and you can prove that that the other side, that the government entity, although it cuts both ways, but if you prove that the government entity was knowingly and intentionally violating the law, um, then not only can you get these attorney's fees and, and court costs, but you can also get a fine against them for $250 per day um, that, that starts 30 days after you got your advisory opinion to the end of the lawsuit. So that could be a really hefty fine against, against a municipality who you can prove was knowingly violating the law. So this, I think, is a really useful provision in giving um, builders and developers a lot of leverage, hopefully before we ever go to litigation. Um, you know, we can now send, send a municipality a letter who's, who we feel like is, is violating a zoning law and not you know, granting you the entitlements that they should be granting you. Um, one approach we could take is send them a letter and say, hey, here's what the law says, here's what you're violating. By the way, now you're knowingly violating it. Um, and, so, and so if this goes to litigation, then, then you're gonna be in a world of trouble. So I think it gives us a lot of tools that we can, we can use to, to influence those situations where you feel like you're being dealt with wrongly on, on land use issues. Um, let's go to the next one, House Bill 226. Um, th there's a lot of technicalities in this one I'm not going to get into other than to say that um, where there's stormwater um, requirements um, for, for, for controlling your stormwater rates and volume, um, there was some updates to say that if, if the builder developer uses low impact development practices that are approved, and outside of this there's some regulations that talk about what's an improved low impact development practices, um, so things like allowing the water to percolate or to um, evaporate, then the city now has to take that into consideration when they're determining whether you've met the, um, you're, you're complying with the stormwater runoff rates and volume um, requirements. Um, so an update there, but I think that maybe the more important piece is they also put in a system that said that if you feel like the city is wrong and they've told you you're not meeting the requirements, but you feel like you are, there's now a system in place that you, that you can appeal it to a neutral engineer. So you send it to an engineer, you get the engineer's opinion, and there's a, gonna be a list maintained of, of approved engineers. And if they say that you're right, then that's, that's the decision they have to go with. And, and both sides have to split the cost of that review from the engineer. And my last one, um, House Bill 223, this really coincides really well with the case that, that Jeff was explaining about the um, statute of repose. Um, initially, this, this bill was brought to try to limit the statute of repose to three years from its current six years. 
that part didn't pass. And I think that's actually good for the industry that it did not pass because it would exasperate the problem Jeff was talking about where you might run out of time to sue, to sue anybody else down the line if you get sued, um, if, if the whole thing is only three years. So the six year statute of repose is still in place, but it clarified that um, that deadline applies to product liability claims. It applies to suppliers of construction materials. So this, these are kind of the down the chain people that you might want to bring suits against. And it's saying, by the way, these guys are protected by that six year deadline. Um, it also added a provision that said that, but if you have a contract with a party and, and they breach that contract, um, even if you're, you know, if they breach the contract in year five and 11 months, um, you can still bring that breach of contract claim up to two years after the breach. So it gave you a little bit of leeway in, in a breach of contract issue. Um, it also reestablished and kind of reworded a provision that says that, by the way, you can contract with your party to have a statute of limitations shorter than six years or statute of repose shorter than six years. That's huge. And that's something that I recommend that you do in all of your contracts, your rep sees, your, your contracts with, um, with suppliers, with, with subs and everything else. This gives you a, a great opportunity to say, you know what, you can only sue me within the first, you know, one, two, three years. Um, then that gives you time to then, you still have another, you know, up until three more years, so the six year hits where you can take care of an issue if, if you were to get sued. So that's a really um, important provision that you should be taking advantage of. It should be in your contracts. Um, we can help you with that if, if, if you need it because it's not enough to just state it in the contract has to be stated in a way that it's enforceable and that the court will say that it's um, what they call it illusory. So those are, those are mine and I'll turn over to Jeff. All right, just, just one uh, quick comment on that. Um, I, I think it remains to be seen whether courts would enforce a super short um, contractual uh, um, statute of limitations. So if you said, you know, you can only sue me within the first six months or something like that, I don't know if I would be quite so bold um, and test that with the courts because there's a very good chance I think that the courts might reject that um, as unreasonable. But according to the new statute, you know, on its face, it seems like you could you could probably do that. The better course of action might be to be a little more reasonable and be shorter than six years, certainly, but maybe not, you know, a month um, or six months or maybe even a year. Um, and those are things that you know we we could certainly talk about. All right, um, I'm gonna go through mine really quick because they're, they're really of very little consequence. Um, House Bill 374 um, just makes very minor amendments to building regulations. Um, also, I think the legislature was concerned about the time it was taking for cities um, to approve plans um, and to provide inspections after requests. And so they authorized um, the Utah League of Cities and Towns to submit a report um, to their committee about how much time is it taking um, for, from plan review requests to approval and from inspection requests to when the actual inspection takes place. It doesn't really take any action with respect thereto. It's basically just saying, hey, we want to take a look at this. Um, it also allows the, uh, a local planning commission to reduce certain building requirements um, when, when a builder is building low-income housing. And I think that's trying to combat the, um, the ever rising costs of construction and, and really the fact that in Utah, it's, it's getting to the point where there is no um, low income housing or it's becoming very scarce and, and builders want, they want to incentivize builders uh, to be able to 
um, build some low-income housing, and so they might be able to ease certain um, design elements and things like that for those types of things. Um, also, there's a quick amendment about uh, uh, gas water heaters that, that we don't really need to talk about. Let's go on to the next one. Um, it, House Bill 54, um, this is just a minor amendment to the, uh, the building code um, for mass timber products. If, if um, it, it just basically clarifies the standards for the use of mass timber products. Um, it's, it's very minor and, and fairly inconsequential. So if this statute is something that you're concerned about um, or something that you're involved with, um, or have a question about, you know, I'd encourage you to probably just to reach out. And, and that's really it um, for us. It was a fairly light year from um, a legislative standpoint. The biggest one, I think, is that statute of proposed one. Scott, um, do you see Patrick's question up there? Yep, I did. I just responded. And, and I'm going to kind of give this as a general response. Um, we're, we're right at the end, and we don't want to keep everyone, but... Um, We'd be happy to, to respond to, to questions you have about this stuff specifically. Uh, we're not going to send you a bill for doing that. Um, so feel free to reach out to us. We have our, our emails here and our phone. Um, and and we'll, we'd be happy to kind of discuss anything that, you know, since we didn't have time for really to do Q&A today, we'd be happy to discuss, discuss any of that. But I, I will give a quick answer. Um, so the question is, can, can you limit um, the statute and it's not just the statute of repose we're dealing with with CCNRs issues, but can you can you limit the you know the deadline for pursuing uh, developer under, under in your CCNRs? And and yes, you can. And it's fairly common in the industry, at least in the CCNRs I draft. It's it's pretty routine that I do that. Um, and, and there's a lot of other protections we can put in place. As Jeff mentioned, a lot of this is still untested, and there's always a chance a court's going to say, you know, there's some equitable considerations here, and you had all the power, and this or that. So some of that can be taken care of in the way you draft it. But some of that, we just have to realize a lot of it's untested. We don't know for sure that it's all going to stand up in court. So we usually put a lot of backstops in there um, in, in case they don't, in case they don't all end up getting approved if, if there's litigation. Perfect. Scott and, and Jeff, thank you so much for taking your time today. Are there any other questions that you can either put it in chat or just unmute yourself real quick? Perfect. Seeing none, I, I think a lot of people, Scott, will take advantage of emailing or calling. Um, again, your time means a lot to us. Scott serves on our education committee. This is our first webinar um, by Zoom for this um, pandemic period, and, and you've done a remarkable job. Uh, Scott, we had a higher attendance than what we're accustomed to in relation to our in-person classes, and that might be because of the ease of doing the, the time. But um, Jeff, I don't know you, but thank you. Uh, you're, it's great, great information, and, and we look forward to you being able to do this again in the future. And, and thanks, association members, for participating. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you.